mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your Father and your all holy, gracious, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever in the ages of ages. Um, St. John the Evangelist, You know, sometimes standing up here, like I look at all my notes, and I don't know what I'm looking at, and we're talking, and I'm trying to keep the thing together, you know? So anyways, we finished, and I shouldn't have finished. I should have said one more thing, so now I have to conclude at the beginning, which is bad. Um, so remind me real quick about, oh, first of all, Pentecost. Let me just get on my soapbox for just a second. Um, Sigrid, I will make you. Do you want to? No. Well, Sigrid had a nice experience today. She evangelized like four people, and they were all in awe of her. And I just want to say that Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit, I've talked to you before about reliving the life of Christ in our own life. We're walking it through his life, living uh, the revelation of the sacred scriptures uh, in our own lives. Okay, And all those things we see in the sacred scriptures are supposed to be present in our lives. And so the descent of the Holy Spirit, through confirmation, chrismation, we received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what was the last thing that Jesus Christ said? When you receive the Holy Spirit, what are they supposed to go and do? Yeah, go forth and teach all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what does our society say when you try to talk about Jesus Christ in public to somebody? Shut your mouth. Yeah, shut your mouth. Don't do it. Yeah, don't. No religion. And what else are you going to talk about? Everything else like bubble gum and lollipops. Right? I mean, well, for me. (laughs) Anyways, but, you know, we've been given the, the gift of Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to go out and convert the world to Him. And it's not us. It's Him working through us. Right? As long as we have trust and faith in Him, amazing things can happen through our hands, because they're His hands now. Right? So, um, I just say that, by the way, that, you know, Pentecost in our own lives should bring about a new conversion, a new acceptance of Christ, a new acceptance of the Holy Spirit, and a willingness to do His work every moment of the day, whether we're standing in the grocery line, or whether we're, you know, on the freeway, driving the freeway, or even hiking, yeah. right? Whether we're hiking, whatever it is, every opportunity to share the message of Jesus Christ, even if the other person's a believer, they need something I have, and I need something they have. So forget the bubble gum and nonsense about the TV shows. And they got, like, I read this thing about on the news today about American Idol or something like that, just some new. It's on the news. That's not news. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, you know, the news is Pentecost is here. We got the Holy Spirit. We can convert the world. Right? right. The news is that the new book by the Holy Father is outselling all the other books. Yeah, there you go. And I didn't know that because I don't have television, but. It's on Drudge. That's good news. Oh. Oh. I don't look at Drudge. (laughs) But, uh, no, see, I got my news from you. See, that's the conversation right there. You get the important things, leave the rest of it at home. All right. Jesus. So we did uh, Wedding at Cana last week, and I didn't quite get through the whole thing as I should have, but the center, the, the most important point in it that we got to was what verse? Yeah, and what do we see in the Old Testament about that phrase? Does it, is it appear, like, out of, Harris, how does that appear? What is that? Let's read, read us that, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Verse. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's he saying? Translate that for me, Harris. Uh, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah. right? Am I right? Okay. I disagree. <laughs> you disagree with what? Well, I hope you disagree with what he said. Does that make sense that Jesus would talk to the Virgin Mary like that? No. No. Okay, so whenever we get something in the scriptures that is confusing like that, say, wait a minute, possibly the translator is translating simply the words before him, not looking necessarily at the context, and especially translating without faith. If you translate the text without faith, 
You're going to fall into all sorts of errors because a translation is ultimately an interpretation. Okay? There's no perfect translation. And a translator has to determine, well, I'm going to translate this way or that way. And that's why in every single one of our Bibles right now, that verse is translated differently. Okay? Marianne, what? you want to say something? No. Oh, so what do we see in the Old Testament? What is this between you and me? Yeah, what is that? Is, is, there's a, it's a covenant. Yeah, it's a Hebrew, Hebrew idiom being used. Okay, and when that Hebrew idiom is used, it is it, uh, it denotes what? A covenant agreement. It's like saying, yes, I will enter into covenant with you. Yes, I will do as you ask. Okay, and in light of John's whole seven-day progression, in light of the wedding on the seventh day, in light of the failed bridegroom and the new bridegroom in John who stands there, it's not too far after that Jesus is called the bridegroom in the Gospel of John. Okay, and Mary is identified as the woman. Okay, recalling for us what person in the Old Testament? Eve. Eve. Okay, so you have this conversation between the new Adam, the bridegroom, and the new Eve. Okay, and I read you a couple of quotes last time of um, um, this, um, Newman, right? It was Newman um, talking about uh, watching what Eve does. Okay, and seeing what Eve does, we can determine what in the New Testament. What Mary's going to do, right? Okay? And not a one-to-one parallel, but a reversal, right? She's going to do the opposite of what Eve did. So we look at the fall, and we watch Mary reverse that. Same with Jesus, right? We watch what Adam did in the fall, and we're going to see what Jesus does. Is it too cold here, too hot? Uh, more of a pop, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It'll be cold in a second. Sorry, ladies. You can move to, or scoot up if you want. If it gets too cold behind you, because that's like freezing air conditioning area. You don't have to go get it. Okay. Um, so, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, O oh, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What hour is he speaking about? The hour of the passion. Yeah, in the Gospel of John, Jesus' hour is the hour of his passion. Okay? And again, we have a translational issue here. It can be translated in two ways. And I think both ways are probably a decent translation. The one we have. Okay, my hour has not yet come. Or... Has not my hour come? Okay, and I think that may, may, may be a better translation. Has not my hour come? Yes, I will do what you ask of me. Or, my hour is now at hand. Okay. What's that? That's not the case. I don't know why you translate right. that way. Because the hour of the passion is not at that point. Right. The public ministry is. Point's a good one, is saying, but is, but you, you're going to translate it based upon the context of the situation, and his hour has not yet come. And I'm going to say yes and no. His hour has not yet come, and that's why I'm saying both ways are a decent translation. Okay, but in the Gospel of John, hiding behind the text, and it's going to become more and more evident to us, his hour really is at hand. The Pharisees have begun. To plot his death, even now. Okay? In fact, it is at this moment that Jesus Christ, the new Adam, covenanting himself to the new Eve, takes his place, as Francis wanted Adam to do in the beginning, takes his place in between the serpent and his bride. Okay, I love the image of, you know, the image I'm going to go for. What's the movie? I can never remember the title of it. I can't remember. With the sword on the cliff, you know? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, no. yes. <laughs> right? And you remember, um, you remember Gandalf is out there on the edge of the cliff. Remember that? And in the, in the, in the hole, the dragon's down there. And, he's, and he finally turns, and the, um, his follower guys flee, right? 
and he throws his sword down, right? And he says, what? You shall not pass. It's at this moment in the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ takes his rightful place as the new Adam in between the new Eve and the serpent. And it's at this moment that the text begins to drive towards his crucifixion. There will not be one story from here to the rest of the gospel that doesn't point to his crucifixion. It's at this moment of the covenant, it would make sense, wouldn't it? That as Adam takes his place in front of the serpent, he takes his, makes his choice ultimately for the ultimate battle of his life. And that is why, at this moment, right following the words of covenant, his hour comes into view. Whether, I, whether it's his hour starting now, or whether it's his hour upon the crucifixion, it's now that Jesus Christ calls it forward, brings that image forward for us. It's now that the cross comes into view, because it's now that he stands against the workings of the devil. And he will go ultimately to his death to give life to his new bride. Okay? Does that make sense? I think it's very interesting that Mary says to him, says to the man, do whatever he tells you. After, I mean, it just seems like, and then she says that, that then it all starts. Yeah. So she said, so how is she understanding what he has just said? Right? He, she, is, she hasn't understood it as a review. She has not understood it as a rebuke, right? Oh, no. Right, she's exactly the opposite, yeah. right? Which would indicate for us that the, trans, the translation of the text is a bad one into the English, okay? All right. Hanson, go ahead, verse 6. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to, they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water, now became uh, become wine, he did not know where it came, where it come, came from. So the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept it with wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Titanus, Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brethren and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. Okay. Oh, just, I'm just going to say a couple of things and we're going to move on because we don't have time. Uh, in this first miracle, so this is the first of his miracles. It also can be understood this is a, his primary miracle, his most important miracle. Okay, It begins his, his, the revelation of who he really is. And he reveals what in the miracle? What did, the, what did his followers see? Water turned into wine. Yeah, what does the text say? What did they the see? Was yet to come. Now I'll read the text. What did they see? His they, glory. they beheld his glory. And we've talked about this before. When you behold the glory of the Lord, what happens to you? And you're transfigured. You're transformed. That's right, transfigured. And they believed in him. And when you believe in Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, what happens to you? You become the children of God. Okay? They saw the sign, it says. But they believed, they entrusted themselves to him. Okay? They saw the sign, but they saw through the sign more than just the miracle before them. They saw who he really was, and they believed in him. It's going to become an important theme through the gospel. Seeing the miracles of Jesus Christ, seeing the signs that he works, and either being able to see through the sign to who he is, to behold his glory, or to be left to the level of the miracle, to be, in a sense, dazzled by what he does, and to be left there. And if you're left there, you're in trouble in the gospel. We're going to see over and over again people coming to him. 
we, they believed in him because of the signs. We saw the signs that you did. Whenever we see this word signs in the Gospel of John, whenever, most of the time, the people seeing the signs are in trouble. Because they're relying upon their physical eyes instead of their spiritual eyes. Their fleshy eyes, or fleshly eyes, or bodily eyes, instead of their spiritual eyes. Okay? They see a miracle before them. They taste the wine. Okay? The servants saw the sign in some sense. right? They tasted the, the wonderful wine now made, but they didn't believe in him. The apostles believed in him. They beheld his glory. Okay? After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, so this whole context of what has happened so far, we find the first couple of chapters in John are like happening within a couple of days period. There's not big intervals taking place. And we read it, unfortunately, over weeks and weeks and even months with us, right? And we get this disconnect. But this whole thing has been taking place. The baptism, the wedding at Cana, okay? And now he goes up to Jerusalem all within a few days. Okay? So the Passover of the Jews is at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What image has got to come to mind for us? The Passover is at hand. What happens at the Passover? Crucifixion. All right, before that. The lamb. The lamb is slain, right? The lamb is slain, right? Is slaughtered for the sins of the people. And who has Jesus just been identified as? The lamb of God. Okay? And Jesus knows he's the lamb of God. I read a commentary once saying that Walking up the hills to Jerusalem at Passover would have been walking. What? Oh, you can't take bad things. No, I can't. You just hear some outrageous things that people make that Jesus didn't know that this was going to happen to him and all this stuff. No, not at all. Yeah. The total opposite. That's what I'm saying. The total opposite. What someone's going to say. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, walking up to Jerusalem at the Passover would have been like walking through creeks filled with blood. Because so many animals were being slaughtered. I mean, the, the world flocked to Jerusalem. Okay, the Jewish world flocked to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. It would have been jammed. And there would have been sacrifices continually going on. And this one commentator explained it, creeks of blood flowing down the hills. And here is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, just being identified as a lamb by John the Baptist, making his way up to Jerusalem. And we oftentimes we set up Jesus on the pillar as, as you know, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And that's true. But he also was a man with the full emotions of being a man. And knowing that his death would come and he would be slain as the lamb. Okay, and here he is walking up to Jerusalem, seeing the blood flowing down, which eventually would flow from his body. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Sheila, go ahead, verse 14. 14? Yeah. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers at their business. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all, with the sheep and oxen, out of the temple. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, you shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign have you to show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Who's, who built the temple? <laughs> Herod, remember? Yes, thank God you guys went to that. Yeah, it's Herod's temple, right? Herod had rebuilt the temple. Why? Remind me. To show that he was the Messiah. Yeah, but why was? Why did he need to rebuild it? What was the state of the temple? Wait, he destroyed it. Yeah, Herod was. Yeah. What's that? It had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. After that, you remember the whole battle with the Maccabees and the cleansing of the temple and all of that. Yeah, kind of. You guys got it down. We'll do it next year. Anyways, okay, fine. Herod had built and rebuilt the temple, and so Jesus walks in again. And go ahead, just get that thing off. 
and will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Okay, so Jesus goes to the temple and he clears it out. What kind of man in the Bible goes in and clears out the temple, or does acts similar to that? What kind of a guy in the, in the Old Testament especially? A prophet. Yeah, prophets come to judge the sins of the people. Right? They announce the judgment of God upon what is taking place upon the sins. So Jesus walks into the temple like a prophet, okay, and cleanses the temple, okay, throws out the money changers, throws out the animals, the whole bit. Okay, turn to Zechariah. Zechariah is just before. Find uh, Maccabees and go backwards. Okay, Maccabees, last books of the Bible there. And uh, Zechariah. Malachi and Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. If my memory serves me correct, the New American doesn't have chapter 14. Is that correct? Zechariah, find Maccabees and go backwards. Maccabees is the last book of the Bible. I got this little bookmark to help me out. Zechariah chapter 14. Does everybody have chapter 14 in your Bible? Go with uh, Maccabees last book. Oh, Is that verse 20? Yep. Okay. Marianne, you want to read that for us? In that day. Okay, now hold on. On that day, whenever you read the prophets, on that day, what day are they talking about? Day of salvation. Which is what? When the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, yeah. On that day. Whenever you say the prophets, it's when the Messiah is going to come. Okay, go ahead. On that day, that which is upon the bridle of the Lord shall be holy to the Lord. Loud. And the cauldrons in the house of the Lord shall be as the, I don't know how to say this, files. files, shall be as the files before the altar. Bowls, vials, okay, fine. No, no, sorry. And every cauldron in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sanctioned, rather sanctified, the Lord of hosts. And all that sacrifice shall come and take of them, and shall see it in them, rather, shall see it in them. And the merchant shall be no more in the house of the Lord of hosts. What translation is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's got the Jewish back there? Dave? Do you, I mean, uh, you, you sick traditionalist. Oh. I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So as she stumbled her way through, I'll read you verse 21 again. Verse 21. And, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the flesh of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. There shall no longer be trading in the house of the Lord on that day when the Messiah comes. Okay? Think the Jews that hang out in Jerusalem knew that text? Oh yeah. Um, Malachi, which is the next book, turn on two pages. Which chapter? Malachi chapter three. No laughing, Marianne. Malachi chapter 3, verse uh, 1 through 5, or 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, till they present right offerings to the Lord. 
that the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Okay. So there's these, that's just two samples for us of these prophecies that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be a, a cleansing of the temple, a cleansing of the, of the rulers of the people, a cleansing of the Levites. The place, the, the house of the Lord is going to be made holy again. Okay, and so Jesus comes in, John chapter 2, says, And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign? Notice that sign again. Back, remember back with the wedding of Hannah. What sign have you to show us for doing this? Show us that you have the power to do what you're doing. How are they reading what he's doing? Okay, they're reading him as a prophet. And they're saying, show us evidence that you're a prophet sent from God. Okay? I was in John. John. Something I don't understand about that. Yeah. Why isn't the act itself the sign that he has the power? Because if he didn't have the power, then he couldn't have done the act, right? That's a, that's a good point. And we're going to see that again where the, the, uh, the Jews cannot discern the signs of Jesus Christ. They continually are there. They see them, but immediately they show themselves to be blind to it. They don't see it as a sign. Okay? And I was I saying is that they're, all I'd say is they're struggling to understand what's going on and they're, and they're failing to do it. Okay? Because what you're saying is you're seeing it as a sign and that he's a prophet. Or at least that he's at least a prophet. Yeah. Right. And they're not seeing that. They're saying, we want evidence, we want more evidence, show us more signs, show us a miracle, show us you have power. Call down fire from heaven. Whatever you want to do, show us evidence that you have the power to do this. Okay? Yeah. But if they remember that prophecy, would that be sufficient? <laughs> Same point, right? And they're blind to it, right? Yes, they know the prophecies, and yet they can't discern in the workings of Jesus Christ the truth of what he's doing. This thing's going to get so bad to the point where he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and they're going to seek to kill him, and they're going to seek to kill Lazarus. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, this is only the beginning. So, you know, we got a problem with this one because this is only the beginning of their struggles. It's going to get worse and worse and worse as we go. This point in this text is going to come back to haunt Christ, if you will. Okay, when's it going to come back? When is this story going to be brought back up in the story of Jesus Christ? What's that? Yeah, it is. Well, who said trial? And it's trial, right? Turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. <laughs> Uh, what do we just look at? Chapter 13, uh, verse 31. Well, not verse 31. Yeah, 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 verse 31. Chapter 13, verse 31. Go ahead, Harris. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay. It actually wasn't the text I thought it was good, but that, that points <laughs> that Jesus identifies or reveals himself in this in this uh, cleansing of the temple, begins to reveal who he is. Okay? And if we know the story, if we know the story of the synopsis, we know the story of the Old Testament and what happens to prophets, okay, we can read behind the text what's going on. 
Okay? If he is a prophet sent from God, if he's at least a prophet sent from God, the Jews are going to kill him. And they're going to kill him in Jerusalem. Okay? So all of this going on in the background. In his trial, the same text is going to come up. Right? And what's he going to be accused of saying? This man said he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Is that true? He did Did he? No. Go back to John. <laughs> yeah, what did he say? No. <laughs> Who's going to destroy it? They would. They will. But in his trial, what do they say? This man said he would destroy the temple. Right? And rebuild in three days. Now, what did Jesus actually claim? In claiming to be able to rebuild the temple, who was he claiming to be? Who builds the temple? The king. Alright. What is, what is the temple for the Jews? House of sacrifice. What is it? It's the house of God. Right? It's the house of God. We've talked about this before. For the Jews, the temple is more than just simply the building in Jerusalem. It's a symbol of something even greater than that. It's a microcosm of the entire universe. Okay? Who builds the house of God? The king builds the house of God. The Messiah builds the house of God. And God builds the house of God. And so Jesus Christ is either, Jesus the Christ, is either claiming to be the Christ, he's either claiming to be the king, the Messiah, the son of David. Why the language was so ambiguous? What's that? Why the language was so ambiguous? What language? It could easily say, you destroy the temple, I'll be in three days. That's what he said. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. I don't know. We have to look at the Greek. Okay. I mean, that's that's a that's a given. Well, destroy this temple. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Don't rely on the high school girl to help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that kind of language at my fingertips anymore. Is that what it's called? An imperative? Yeah. Okay. Oh, Thank you. What's your name? <laughs> I gotta get you in my ears. <laughs> you will be reading. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus is claiming to be, he's claiming to be the Messiah, okay, the son of David who built the temple. Where are you? I'm in John. Chapter 2, verse 20. Verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. Okay, Navarra commentary. Pay attention, pay attention. Every Israelite had to offer a Passover sacrifice, an ox or a sheep if he was wealthy, or two turtle doves, or two pigeons if he was not. I'm in, I'm in a commentary, the bar commentary. In addition, he had to pay a half shekel every year if he was 20 or over. The half shekel, which was the equivalent of a day's pay of a worker, was a special coin, also called the temple money. Other coins in circulation were considered impure because they bore the image of pagan rulers. During the Passover, because of the extra crowd, the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, was full of traitors, money changers, etc. And inevitably, this meant noise, shouting, shouting, bellowing, and manure. Prophets had already fulminated against these abuses, which grew up with the tacit permission of the temple authorities, who made money by permitting trading. So what he's saying that during the festivals, the court of the Gentiles, the place where the non-Jews were supposed to come and have a place to worship the true God, was turned into a place of trade. And the world, the Gentiles, were pushed outside. The whole point of the Jewish nation, the whole entire point of the calling of Israel, was to convert the world, to change the world, and to bring them back to God. That was the entire point of their existence. They had cut off their entire point of existence by cutting out the, um, the court of the Gentiles. Okay? 
you remember also something about that, the, about the money changers. Remember when Jesus goes to the temple in the synoptics, and he says, and he's asked the question about who to pay the tax to, right? He says, show me a coin. You remember the story? Okay. And I think the Pharisees or the Levites, whoever it was, what did they do? They pulled out a coin. He says, show me whose image is on that coin. Whose image was on it? Caesar. Okay. The money of the Romans and the money of the world was not allowed in the temple. They had to go before entering into the temple and exchange their worldly money for pure money, temple money. Okay? So they go and they try to trick Jesus, or they're trying to set him up, and he says, show me a coin. And they pull the coin out and expose their own sin. Okay? Yeah. We'll get to the Celtics. Yes. One of the outer courts. Yeah, there was there was all these different courts. There was the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the uh, there was the um, the treasury. There was all these different places. So okay. the Gentiles did sacrifice. They were. There was a place for them to come and do that. Yes. Okay. And the, I mean, you can imagine a pagan world. You know, sacrificing to different gods and coming. You know, you imagine a place for that. Okay. Uh, also could have been the place for those preparing to be circumcised and enter to accept Judaism. Okay? It's like our narthex, actually, right? The whole point of the narthex, that's for, that's for non-baptized people. That's where they're supposed to go. In the old days, there was an icon of Aristotle and of Plato in the, uh, in the narthex because those were the images of the highest point of the natural man. And that's who they looked to, uh, you know, for perfection at that stage in the narthex or in the vestibule before, because they could not enter into the church. Okay. Um, Carson, D.A. Carson. The cattle, sheep, and doves were used in the sacrificial worship of the temple, especially for worshipers coming from a distance. It was a convenience and a service to be able to purchase them on site instead of having to bring them from afar. At one time, the animal merchants set up their stalls across the Kidron Valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. But at this point, they were in the temple courts, doubtless in the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court. Jesus' complaint is not that they are guilty of sharp business practices or should therefore reform, and should therefore reform their ethical life, but that they should not be in the temple area at all. How dare you turn my father's house into a market, he exclaims. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Jesus' demonstration in the temple was an attack on the whole of the financial arrangement for the sacrificial system, and thus an enormous threat to the priestly authorities. Okay? So in his action, in a sense, there's judgment upon the whole, everything going on in the temple. Okay? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the play, they're allowing this whole thing to take place, right? So it wasn't a tradition for Mosaic Law? Like, I guess I'm wondering oh, the, 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 did it start, or? The, what? What part of it? The money changing? Is it just because of the different coins? I don't know the history of the, having to change your money, but it's, I mean, it's probably, you know, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I don't know the history of it and when it started. Okay, it's not in like Leviticus or something like that. Okay, to my knowledge. One more thing. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. What is Jesus talking about? The temple of His body. Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John is the revelation of the glory of the Father. What makes the temple the temple? It is God's house, and God dwells there. And how do you know God dwells there? Because of the cloud. Okay, but finish the whole the whole name of it. It was the glory cloud. Okay, here the, the Shekinah the Shekinah glory cloud. Okay, 
The cloud was the revelation that, the, that God's glory dwelt there. But in the Babylonian exile, the glory cloud had departed in the book of Ezekiel and departed and left the temple. The Jews hid the Ark of the Covenant, never to find it again. When they came back from the Babylonian exile, from that time forward to the time of Christ, the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies entered into an empty room. A dark, empty room. The Ark of the Covenant was not there. The glory of God had not returned to the temple. It is on this day when our Lord walks into the temple that the glory of God finally returns to the house of the Father on earth. And if they crucify the body of Jesus Christ, the moment that they kill the glory of God, they destroy the temple from being the temple in the first place. They destroy the reason for the temple being the temple in the first place. Okay? It's no longer, they can go there and worship there if they want, but it's no longer the dwelling place of God. The moment that they kill Jesus Christ, they kill the reason for their existence, really. Why don't you say the same thing about from the Babylonian exile until when he comes? If, if the glory of God is not there then, right. why? Oh, you're right. It still is a problem. It's basically a synagogue. Okay? It's not the dwelling place of God. It's a holy place. Okay? It's a shrine, but it's not what it once was. And the Jews knew that very well, and they awaited the day when the glory of God would return to the temple. Okay. And what I'm saying is, so in John... So it's something they are aware of? It's not just the high priest who knows? Right. Okay. Right. Sorry. And the Ark of the Covenant has been lost. And I'm saying, in John, we have an insight because he has told us that Jesus is the revelation of the glory of the Father. So when Jesus walks back into the temple, it's the first time since the Babylonian exile that the glory of God has returned to the house of God on earth in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, but if the temple was just a synagogue... I'm saying basically the synagogues... They, they did not sacrifice in synagogues, but they, they did continue yes, to sacrifice I, at the temple. Yes. So there's a huge Take difference between these two. There is. What I'm saying is that ontologically, what the thing is in its being... The glory of God's not there. Right. It's not what it once was. Right? Because the destruction of the temple in 70 AD symbolized that Jesus had made the sacrifice for all times, which is why Judaism is now devoid of priests and Levites. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it goes a little further than what we're saying, but I mean, but yeah, I mean, the, ultimately. But if the glory in, of God was not resting there, why did they continue to sacrifice? Why did they? Yeah. Where else are they going to sacrifice? They were doing the best they could. Right? It's like the Jews today that are trying to re, you know, restore the temple and, and, and uh, breed the red heifer and hold it and restore sacrifice. They're doing the best they can. Right? Um, all right. We can say a lot more things. we got to move on. Um, uh, we got to really move on. Okay. Verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it was taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, once again, they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. They believed the word will become very important in, in John. And it will contrast those who believe in the signs. Those who see the miracle and do not trust his word. Versus those who trust his word. Okay, and we're going to see it for the first time revealed right here. Let's read verse 22 again. When therefore he was raised from the dead and his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, okay, so it's all within that same context, right? We're still within the context of the, of the baptism, even. Okay? At the, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Is this good or bad? 
It's revealed right here in the first verse of chapter 3. Okay, the rulers of the Jews, yes, and? Okay, but no, right here in the con right here in the text. Nicodemus comes to him what? By night. By night. In darkness. So What's not. darkness in the Gospel of John, my prologue memorizers? Not Thank you. Do not know the light. And yet they think they comprehend the light. But they don't. We who have memorized the prologue of the Gospel of John have a key insight. Okay? What else do we know about the Pharisees? Nicodemus comes to him by night. That's a bad thing. But why does Nicodemus have to come to him by night? Maybe he doesn't want anyone else to see him. Why not? Possibly. He's definitely sneaking around. Okay? In a sense, we can put the Pharisees behind Nicodemus through this whole story. Nicodemus is going out there in the night while the Pharisees are standing back doing what? If you were to read into the text, they're standing back. Well, what kind of conversation are they having about Jesus? Is it a good one? Are they supportive of him? No. no. Otherwise, Nicodemus had gone to him in the light and said, Oh, Jesus, you're so great. We're going to follow you. That's not what's going on at all. Okay? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Another point. Harris, what's that mean? Translate it. No, I'm just Nicodemus comes from two Greek words, Nikao and Demos. What's Demos? What word is that in Greek? What's it, how do you translate that in English? People. 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 Democracy, yes. People. Nikao means? Good. Crusher or oppressor or, okay. Or the oppressor of the people. What kind of ruler is Nicodemus? <laughs> not a good one. Okay. So far, Nicodemus is not putting a very good light in the Gospel of John. Don't worry. Because we have something very good taking place, and that is he has come to the light, who is Jesus Christ. And what do we know? If a man comes from darkness and he stands in the presence of the light, what happens to him? 